Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores. It's Pula again. Canada wins gold in overtime. Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. Hey, Aaron here, your host of Changing on the Fly. Just a few quick notes before we jump into this episode. This show is going to be all about toxic masculinity and hockey. And on that subject, there's been a huge story that's been shaking the hockey world the last few weeks. Former NHLer Dan Carcillo dropped a bomb on Twitter in November when he came out with a story about brutal hazing that he was a victim of on his OHL team in Sarnia, Ontario. Carcillo's revelations are blowing the cover on hazing and hockey, and it's hopefully going to be something that's going to lead to not only some policy changes, but a real culture shift in the sport. While we don't talk much or really at all about hazing on this episode, you can be sure that we're going to be talking about it in the months to come on Changing on the Fly. This is just way too important of an issue right now in hockey. I know many people out there want us to be talking about it, so we are going to do our best to bring you lots of coverage on the developments as they come. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, if you've had a chance to check out some of our previous episodes, we're up to number five right now, so we've got four others in the bank you can listen to at changingonthefly.ca. Please support us. You can throw us as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash changingonthefly. It's those little donations, those big donations that make independent sports and politics podcasting possible. Anyways, on to the episode. Welcome back to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey and justice. Today, we're going to be talking about toxic masculinity and homophobia. Toxic masculinity is everywhere in sports, and most certainly in hockey. It's in the fan culture. It's in the ads we see on TV during intermissions. And of course, it's in the locker rooms. And when we're talking about toxic masculinity, I'm not just talking about any manly traits like loud farting on fishing trips or manspreading. Toxic masculinity is a set of particular expressions of the male gender that frankly devalue all of humanity. I'm talking about a masculinity that values strength over intelligence, that promotes violence against women, and that puts down gays, lesbians, and people with any other sexual orientation. Toxic masculinity isn't just bad for women and people of other genders. It's really bad for us as men. Now, speaking of the locker room, this became a site of struggle, thrust into the limelight of the media by none other than the president of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump. Let's flash back to the campaign trail of fall 2016. You might remember this piece of tape that got leaked to the media. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. 
You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. Of course, in one of the presidential debates following the release of that tape, Trump tried to excuse his gloats about sexual assault as, quote, locker room talk. This was locker room talk. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I apologize to my family. I apologize to the American people. Certainly, I'm not proud of it. But this is locker room talk. You know, when we have... So if there's any positive takeaway from that whole scenario, it's that several pro athletes jumped all over Trump's locker room talk comments, denouncing this kind of toxic masculinity and saying, not in my locker room. But the negative takeaway is that this kind of locker room talk that Trump brings up, this open boasting about sexual assault, misogyny and hatred still exists in locker rooms today. Trust me, if you've ever been in a locker room with a bunch of sweaty men, amped up on adrenaline, you've probably been witness to this too. On today's episode of Changing on the Fly, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of locker room talk as we examine toxic masculinity and homophobia in hockey. Why these two things in particular? Well, for one, I wanted to get a better understanding of how toxic masculinity is articulated and amplified in hockey culture. And to do that, we're going to look at one of the loudest voices spewing his own version of toxic masculinity in hockey over the last several decades. More on that in just a bit. But I also want to look at these two subjects because for me, toxic masculinity and homophobia, the irrational fear and hatred of queer people, go hand in hand. I'm someone who played hockey growing up and loved the sport for most of my early years. But then well into my teenage years, I can remember those locker room conversations so clearly after our games at the arena. See, I was no Wayne Gretzky, to say the least. I wasn't the best player. More of a defenseman who could hold his own in front of the net, but couldn't take a pass or a slap shot if my life depended on it. So when I would make pretty common mistakes, I'd feel the wrath of my teammates who clearly thought they were better than me. Fan on a shot on a wide open net, you get called a fag. Couldn't take a hit properly, you were a sissy. These kinds of insults, this locker room talk, eventually drove me to drop out of hockey around the age of 16, and I wouldn't pick it up again until well into my adult years. I'm not even someone who identifies as queer, but ever since I was a little kid, I knew there was nothing wrong with being gay and that standing up for gay people around you was non-negotiable. Homophobia is a shameful byproduct of toxic masculinity in hockey, and these are two things we need to weed out of the sport for everyone's sake. So to help us understand these phenomena in hockey, we have two wonderful guests on the program for you today. The first is Christy Alain. Christy teaches in the Department of Sociology at St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick. She's a lifelong hockey fan, a fierce critic, and we're going to be speaking with her about one of the greatest fomenters of toxic masculinity in hockey, Don Cherry of Coach's Corner. Then, later in the program, we're going to hear about a huge and inspiring anti-homophobia initiative in sports, the You Can Play Project. I met up with Cheryl McDonald, co-chair of the Western Canadian Board of You Can Play, while I was out in Edmonton this year to talk about fighting homophobia in hockey. But first, here's Christy Alain. I interviewed her at the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport Conference in Windsor, Ontario. It's a bit busy in the background, but Christy's interview is fascinating. Let's get into it. (laughs) 
So um, I wanted to talk specifically about you know one of the papers you wrote. I found it really fascinating and 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 really pertinent too because it's about Don Cherry. And of course, for those of us uh, in Canada who grew up watching hockey, Don Cherry is a household name. Also, someone arguably, I mean, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, can be quite problematic at times. Mm-hmm. Someone who upholds um, you know kind of what you've got in terms of like this like old-time hockey kind of nostalgia but first like maybe for people who've never heard of Don Cherry before set us up and tell us a little bit about who this man is and what you kind of see him as representing okay well I mean Don Cherry is I he's been called by uh, other sociologists as the prime minister of Saturday night and I think it's a great way to kind of think about him he's just this bombastic character that shows up on hockey night in Canada for I don't know, used to be about seven minutes. I think now it's down to like four. Um, Anyway, so Don Cherry is just this important figure on Hockey Night Canada, which becomes this kind of galvanizing uh, broadcast for a sense of Canadian national identity, particularly Anglo uh, national identity. And he shows up in the, I think in the 80s, continues on this this program where he basically kind of proclaims what's good about Canada, what's bad about Canada, where he celebrates a particular kind of Canadian masculine identity, often at the expense of Francophone players and European players. And he gets no attention, right? I mean, I think that's the most interesting thing is there's been so little kind of attention, even though the public is deeply invested and embedded in this. You know, CBC does their greatest Canadian contest and he ranks in the top 10. Um, But academics have really largely overlooked him as an important Canadian figure who has something important to say about the ways identities are constructed in Anglo-Canada and the ways that particular men understand themselves, right? He's not without a large following of people. And you women are going to get mad at me out there. When you come to the games... Keep your eyes on the puck. And I'm telling you, I've seen some awful smacks, and it's always a woman yapping away there. No, Look at the game. Lots of fans. What are you talking? Both genders ah, get involved on. in talking about the game. I agree I'm just trying to help Look them. Look at the puck, but don't blame women, men, or anybody else for uh, getting in the odd well, conversation. Uh, but, you know, there's a big bodies out there, 200, uh, 200 pounds, and, you know, all you have to do is hit them. And when you hit them, you don't have to maim them, but hit them to hurt. I mean, nobody's afraid out there. That game tonight, Winnipeg, are you kidding me? They look like nothing either. Nobody hits anybody. Look like a tea party out there. Look, Guys Swedes like and Finns playing at December. Not the left-wing, pinkle media, bleeding hearts, guys. They're, listen, they don't hit anymore. They're trying to get hitting out of the game. Like, what are you, nuts? I know, it's insane. Now, get this. They're taking hitting out of the game. Mandatory visors will be next. I guarantee you that's coming. There'll be no fighting. Are you nuts? And so, like, what you've gotten in this paper is um, you've argued that Don Cherry has this, uh, what you call a nostalgic remembering for this kind of self-made man in hockey. Um, And it's responding very much to to what you call um, a masculinity in in crisis, uh, very much a a white masculinity, too. And so can you talk a little bit more about that, this nostalgic remembering? So... um I think what we see, Don Cherry, especially recently, I think in 2000 up till now, we see him sort of looking back to a kind of celebration of hockey masculinity where, you know, quote-unquote, real men can act like real men. They can uh, they can hit, they can fight. 
and there's a real celebration of a kind of grinding Canadian style hockey masculinity um, which Don Cherry is arguing is under attack. I mean, there's really no evidence that it's under attack per se. Certainly there's been more critiques around the, around player safety and concussions. There's been changes in the rules that have decreased the number of fights, uh, changes in the rules around hitting. Um, but people like Don Cherry and others, I mean, we could, we've seen this with Brian Burke, with Mike Milbury, with the Sutters. There's, certainly Don Cherry's not the only person making these claims, although he's maybe making them the most... Uh, most often. Yeah. Um, anyway, this idea that us, this is linked to a particular kind of masculine identity that harkens back to a different era, a different time, and in some ways a different place, a kind of a place of rural Canada, a place you know where men can be men, where you can settle you know uh, disagreements with your fists, that this is a really appropriate way to conduct yourself as an appropriately masculine white Anglo man and that other men who aren't um, kind of ascribing to these sorts of values are ruining hockey for other people or academics like me who are suggesting that we need to be critical of this kind of masculine expression in the sport that it might not be good for anybody in men's hockey um, really need to be called into question. So we've seen Don Cherry repeatedly suggests that you know it's academics and people in journalism that are you know ruining hockey they're not the the real authentic fans they're not real canadians is in fact what he's arguing because real canadians know that this is the kind of masculinity that that's linked to national identity and the kind of thing we need to protect Once again, that was Christy Allen of St. Thomas University in New Brunswick, interviewed at the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport Conference in 2017 in Windsor, Ontario. If there's one person in the hockey world who embodies the tough guy exterior that Don Cherry often vaunts, it's Brian Burke. Burke is definitely a celebrity in the hockey world, not for his work on the ice, but for his front office gigs. He served as general manager for the Vancouver Canucks, Anaheim Ducks, and Toronto Maple Leafs, just to name a few. Here's what sports writer Matt Hearn has to say about Burke from Hearn's book, One Game at a Time. In a lot of ways, dude is your prototypical hockey a-hole, a big, constantly pugnacious, gruff, ruddy-faced poser who spits out tough guy cliches like teeth after a good fight. You would never expect that someone who vigorously defends fighting and who oozes unbridled masculinity just as much as Don Cherry does would become a leading crusader against homophobia and hockey, right? Well, that's exactly what Brian Burke has come to be known for, a queer rights activist in a tough guy world. Burke is the founder of the organization You Can Play, a nonprofit organization that fights for LGBTQ inclusion across all sports. Our next guest is Cheryl McDonald. Cheryl is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Alberta in Edmonton and also the co-chair of the Western Canadian Board of You Can Play. I sat down with her in her office in Edmonton to talk about the history of You Can Play, homophobia and hockey, and how to fight it. Here's Cheryl McDonald. All 
right, so um, let's start with talking about the You Can Play project. Uh, you work with You Can Play out here in Edmonton. For people who aren't familiar with uh, the You Can Play project and this organization, of course, started by the Burke family, huge name in the hockey community. Uh, tell us a little bit about what this organization is and maybe the story of, of how it got started, too. Sure. Uh, so the, the Burke family is... Uh, down the highway as the other half of the Battle of Alberta out here. Um, Brian Burke, the GM in Calgary, his son was an openly gay hockey player um, who sought to make it more acceptable to be openly gay in hockey because um, at the time there was an overwhelming sense that it wasn't okay. And um, unfortunately, Brendan died in a car accident. And so his brother Patrick and Brian took it upon themselves to start an organization that would raise awareness on LGBT inclusion in ice hockey uh, and other in sport in general, I believe. Um, of course, they're highly tied to hockey, um, but it, it's sport in general. And so now you can play, uh, does fundraising, education, and awareness raising on LGBT inclusion in sport. Um, we have ambassadors who do that work. So typically you'll see Olympians, professional athletes, um, sort of academics perhaps like myself who, who work in the field. And my job is uh, to help coordinate with ambassadors. And so ambassadors are expected to um, do the fundraising events, do the educational events. And my job is to help them brainstorm on how they can make themselves involved um, and certainly I do a bit of that too. I've hosted my own uh, 5K fun run fundraiser. I do appearances like puck drops um, and I speak in high schools, things like that. Um, I think that covers it. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it like I know it's always hard to kind of measure the impacts of work like this because sometimes it's not apparent until even years down the road. Um, but I'm wondering if you could maybe even like share an anecdote or just something that stands out for you looking at the hockey world in terms of like how something like You Can Play has made an impact for for queer athletes in hockey, which is like, as we know, such a, a toxic and homophobic culture a lot of the times. Right. Um, I think the the major difference that that's most tangible is the fact that you can play is now allowed into NHL hockey arenas um the NHL signed a partnership with you can play in 2013 which uh meant they were committed to making hockey a safer place um and that's something that was just unheard of and i i contend that had Brian Burke someone who was so powerful in the hockey community had he not had a gay son there's a chance that we still wouldn't be where we are today um and so I think the fact that the NHL is hosting You Can Play Nights um, and hosting fans and using rainbow flags and pride tape, the rainbow-colored hockey tape and things like that, I think that is evidence of progress and of movement. Um, but perhaps um, even more importantly, I think uh, the fact that at the lower levels in hockey that players are starting to come out and that they're having these conversations. I know in the case of my own research, 10 years ago, I don't think anyone would have been willing to let me into a dressing room to talk to them about homosexuality. And um, at this point, 
I'm I'm talking to former NHL players. I found a small handful of openly gay players. Um, and I'm speaking to younger ones who are quite happy to talk to me about um, either how the LGBT community does play a role in their lives or why they are slightly averse to the idea in the hockey community. Um, so I am watching progress happen, and I'm also learning um, about how to educate hockey players in order to keep that progress going. Mm. So how did you come into this work yourself? This is everybody's favorite story. Um, For better or worse, I don't have uh, one of those really warm and fuzzy stories about a family member or friend or myself um, having an experience with the LGBT community in hockey. I had a conversation with George Laroque, who uh, is a former Edmonton Oiler and Montreal Canadian. Um, I was looking for something to study that had to do with masculinity and ice hockey and my partner at the time met George and um, got me a phone call with him. And uh, so I asked him if someone was looking for a three-year doctoral study on masculinity and ice hockey, what would they study? And he told me I needed to find out why it's not okay to be gay mm-hmm. in ice hockey and told me I needed to talk to younger people and, and find out why. And uh, that was the exact same year that the You Can Play project started, and so I knew that I had probably latched onto something big, uh, and and here we are. It's huge. Yeah, and okay. So you told me that story before, and like I think when you first told it to me, I, I was surprised because again, here's someone like Georgia Larocque, similar to like um, Brian Burke, who in a way is like really emblematic of like the tough guy in hockey. I mean, of course, he was an enforcer, so he was always getting into to fights on the ice, and and the fact that he said that, I mean. What what do you think like drove him to like kind of push you towards this kind of like field of study and this field of work? According to him, uh, he said he knew who most of the gay players were in the NHL, that their teammates were keeping their secret, at least the ones that they trusted, and um, that that's no way to live. And so somebody somewhere needed to be working to make sure that it's okay to be gay and that these men can live comfortably. Um and I mean, I don't know what made that so important for him, um, aside from maybe he was concerned about teammates or, or maybe he was having personal issues of his own. I I don't know, but I, I do know that his, his goal was, was based in helping the people around him feel okay. Mm. What do you think that says about hockey culture more broadly that, you know, these people with like these tough exteriors like Georges Larocque and, and, and Brian Burke that they actually have this sensitivity to, you know, queer issues and, and homophobia in, in hockey. One thing that I've learned uh, through my research over the past, we'll say, 10 or 12 years is that hockey players are very good at compartmentalizing. And that means that they're very aware of the contexts in which they operate and, and how they should operate in those contexts. And so the most um, common example I use is the fist fight. For the most part, hockey players are well aware that to get into a fist fight on the ice is acceptable, whereas if you were to do that on the street, there are very different repercussions, and so most of them don't do it. Um, and I think that, I mean, research does show that hockey players, male, adult hockey players, and, and the younger ones too, um, they do feel the need to act very macho or masculine 
Um, but at the same time, they have families and friends and classmates and what have you where that type of sort of bravado isn't required. And so, for instance, in my experiences with elite, um, sorry, teenage elite hockey players, um, they're well aware that they can belittle one another using anti-gay language in the dressing room. However, with perhaps their female partners and their mothers, that kind of language won't be tolerated. Um, they also know that on social media, they can't use the word fag, for instance, but it's okay to make a sexist joke. Um, and so my understanding is that we m tend to think that hockey players are all kind of the same and that perhaps they're all Neanderthals, um, but there are contexts in which not all of them are Neanderthals and, mm -hmm. and they are sensitive and intelligent and thoughtful and compassionate. Um, it just depends on the context. The hockey community welcomes everyone, no matter their background, the color of their skin, sexual orientation, a disability. In our arena, everyone is welcome. We believe that hockey is an amazing tool to help build character and learn life lessons. If you can play, you can play. Once again, we've been speaking with Cheryl McDonald of the You Can Play Project here on Changing on the Fly. That clip you just heard was a promotional video done in partnership between You Can Play and the Montreal Canadiens, aired prior to Pride Night at the Bell Centre. That was Canadiens forward Andrew Shaw speaking in that clip, who is the You Can Play ambassador of the team. Incidentally, Shaw was also suspended for one game during the 2016 playoffs while he was playing for the Chicago Blackhawks for shouting a homophobic slur on the ice. I came here to talk to you guys today. I want to do a, apologize for my actions. No, no excuses for anything. Um, I want to apologize to the gay and lesbian community. That's well, not the type of guy I am. So I would wager that his role of You Can Play Ambassador is either a punishment for his bad behavior or a PR tactic to clean up his image. Anyways, here's Cheryl McDonald again to talk about why there's never been an openly gay player in the NHL and also to discuss the punishments handed out to hockey players who spew homophobia on the ice. I feel like this is kind of like the age-old question that gets asked in a lot of sports, but um, I want to ask it to you because I think that you know your your insight on this is really valuable. Why has there not yet been an openly gay player in the NHL? Why have we not seen that yet? I don't think that it's safe yet. Um, I I know that the NHL, uh, particularly Patrick Burke. Um, has said that the NHL is ready for an openly gay player and he didn't understand why no one had come out yet. And I can tell you that uh, I'll, I'll use two uh, reasons that I, I think are pretty foolproof at the moment. First, if you are an NHL player, you're probably at least, uh, yeah, you're at least 18, I would say. You might be somewhere close to 35-ish. Um, Normally, at that stage of adulthood, your mind is made up about things. Your your politics are set in, and that likely means that your beliefs about the LGBT community are, are also, you know, quite solid. And there's a chance that we're not going to change your mind on it. Um, and I can tell you that if you're part of that generation, 
that is still averse to the LGBT community and your mind is made up, then that generation behind you, the kids that I interviewed, if some of them are still averse to this, then, and they're supposed to be the open-minded generation, then I can see that there are people still averse to it in the NHL. It only makes sense. Uh, and secondly is language. Um, right now I'm doing research specifically on language to find out if it is indeed offensive, if hockey players are calling one another's one another, excuse me, fags and cocksucker on the ice because um, overwhelmingly my study populations have said we don't actually intend to insult somebody's sexual orientation when we speak to one another like that. We just want to insult one another. Mm, it's part of like the chirping culture in hockey, is, I imagine. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a way to make somebody angry. Um, but fundamentally, if a person is supposed to feel angry because they've been accused of being gay, then regardless of, of your intentions, sexual orientation does still come into play and is still viewed negatively. And most of the openly gay players with whom I've spoken said that that's exactly why they never bothered to come out because they spent all of their time in the dressing room hearing them call one another fags and pussies and bitches and cocksuckers and all of these horrible things. So, of course, you're not about to announce that you happen to like men. Um, so I, uh, I'm working a lot on language because I think that the language does need to change in order for, for people to feel safe coming out. And I also feel that the NHL is not sending much of a message. Mm. Um, I, like the, the last incident was Ryan Getzlaff during the Western Conference Finals in 2017. He was fined $10,000. and I read, using a homophobic slur. Yes. Uh, he mm. actually, um, just for conversation's sake, he, uh, he used the term cocksucker which is interesting because that's not just an anti-gay remark. That could be considered sexist as well because straight women and gay men could be referred to as that, but there was no discussion about calling a woman that. Uh, it, it was considered homophobic. Um, anyway, he was fined $10,000, and I read somewhere that that would be the equivalent of three hours salary for like sort of your general middle-class person in Western society. Um, so... If you've been fined three hours worth of your job, are you actually going to change how you act? Mm -hmm. uh, probably not. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I, I do think that that if we are to change language, the repercussions need to be more serious. But at the same time, not everybody agrees that it's a problem. Um, and I think until we can all agree that it is, uh, hockey still might not be uh, the safest place to come out. You know, finally, it seems like there's been a lot of inroads made in terms of you know, combating homophobia in hockey um, with the partnerships that, that You Can Play Project has with the NHL and, and, and bringing those politics into the arena. Um, I'm wondering if you could maybe just kind of reflect on not necessarily the road that's already been traveled, but the rest of the road that needs to be traveled and, and the education work that needs to be done until we do get to a place where, where it is a safe space to come out in the NHL or in any other place in hockey in society. Right. Um, for me, the, the missing piece is the, the people who don't want to listen, don't want to learn, are not open to a discussion. And so um, there's that rare case that you'll see on social media that someone says to their favorite NHL team, oh, now, <laughs> now that you, you know, are putting on this rainbow parade, I will no longer be going to your games. 
that's typically not the case. Um, so it's the the people sort of, I think, behind their TVs um, that aren't part of You Can Play, that aren't supporting the cause. It's it's the ones that are blocking it out entirely and that aren't interested in change. I think that is the, the sort of next population that we need to try to reach because by hosting these You Can Play nights, the NHL has shown its commitment to change. Uh, the fans who participate in these You Can Play nights have shown their commitment to change. So it's the ones that aren't participating and that aren't open um, that I'm interested in reaching. And I think that in we're in a, a sort of time where you can become demonized for one moment in your life, one comment or one action can define you. Um, and because of that, people are afraid to speak out. And so perhaps there's someone who is homophobic or anti-gay um, who knows that you're basically not allowed to say anything negative about the LGBT community. So they sit quietly in, you know, in their private lives and complain about it and don't participate in hockey um, because of it or they disagree with it. And those are the people that I want to have conversations with. I want to make room for them to express themselves um, and have a, a conversation. It's so easy to unfollow someone, to turn off your TV and, and to shut somebody out instead of having an, an even-handed conversation. And speaking with Dr. Cheryl McDonald uh, with the You Can Play Project here at the University of Alberta, where she works. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much again to Cheryl McDonald of You Can Play, as well as to our earlier guest, Christy Allen. You can check out some of the work You Can Play does on their website, youcanplayproject.org. Also, for another indispensable resource on queer athletes across different sports, check out the blog outsports.com. It may be another generation or so before we see an openly gay hockey player in the NHL, or it could be sooner than that. That will depend on the work of groups like You Can Play, but also on hockey players to take it upon themselves to put words into action and to stand up against homophobia. In a world where toxic masculinity is preached from the highest office of the United States, we need to take extra effort of forging a new path for sports. One that remains competitive, intense, and yeah, even tough, but one that also loudly rejects homophobia and that echoes the refrain if you can play, you can play. On that note, I'd like to give a huge shout out in this episode to Caroline Ouellette and Julie Chu. They're not only two of my favorite women's pro players on Les Canadiennes de Montréal, but they're also a proud couple who just had a baby together in November 2017. So I want to wish Julie, Caro, and their daughter Liv all the best and thank them for encouraging out and proud athletes. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Changing on the Fly so you can hear all the back episodes and all future upcoming episodes. Music in this episode is by The Kendalls, DJ Shadow, Katrinata, and Ilego. For more info on the podcast, find us online at changingontheflypodcast.wordpress.com or email us at changingontheflypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Aaron Lakoff. Thanks for listening.
right, thanks again for listening. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Changing on the Fly. Once again, if you want to support us, our Patreon page is patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Help us cover our web hosting costs, equipment upgrades, and just keeping the heat on in this cold Montreal apartment where I live. I want to also thank all our Patreon supporters who help make this show happen. Anne, Aiden, Jeff, Nick A, Jeremy, Nick T, Eldridge, Ellen, Sam, Grill, and Dasha. Finally, we are a proud member of the Upford Network. They are a network of podcasts that aim to build communities, share stories, and make lives better through comedy, culture, and honest conversations. Find your new favorite show at upfordnetwork.com. We'll be back with more Changing on the Fly soon. Stay tuned. And I'm Sass. And we're the host of The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. It's a podcast where we're going to talk about, well, sports. Specifically, what we do look at is what makes an athlete be the best that they can be. So not only do we talk to some athletes, but we talk to the people behind the athletes, from trainers to sports psychologists, you name it, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about other issues revolving sports as well, hot button issues like concussions, maybe doping. Give us a listen. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julian McKenzie, co-host of the Scrum Podcast, a sports show I'm doing with my podcasting partner in crime, Tristan Damore, on the UpFord Network. Every week, we analyze something different from the Canadian sports media landscape. Lack of diversity, getting a job in the field, coverage of different sports, and answering some of the harder questions. Through a combination of back-and-forth discussion and high-profile guest interviews, we're aiming to figure out exactly what's up in the world of sports. Find us wherever podcasts are sold. iTunes, Stitcher. Google Play, SoundCloud, Message in a Bottle, Morse Code, Telegram, Singing Telegram, Target, Walgreens, Bird's Nest, Dad's Shed, uh, and a crowded convention center bathroom. I think what we see Don Cherry, especially recently, I think in 2000 up till now, we see him sort of looking back to a kind of celebration of hockey masculinity where, you know, quote unquote, real men can act like real men. They can, uh, they can hit, they can fight. And there's a real celebration of a kind of grinding Canadian-style hockey masculinity, um, which Don Cherry is arguing is under attack. I mean, there's really no evidence that it's under attack per se. Certainly there's been more critiques around around player safety and concussions. There's been changes in the rules that have decreased the number of fights, uh, changes in the rules around hitting. Um, but people like Don Cherry and others, I mean, we could, we've seen this with Brian Burke, with Mike Milbury, with the Sutters. There's, certainly Don Cherry's not the only person making these claims, although he's maybe making them the most, uh, most often.